Hey, Bridgetown Church, good morning or good evening, depending on what day it is that you are gathering as a house church. You're in a living room right now or a community room, apartment, complex, or somebody's garage. I have no idea where you are, but welcome again. Thank you so much for following along. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. What a fascinating week with the worldwide coronavirus pandemic and the stock market crash and Kate Brown and many other governors putting a ban on all gatherings over 250 people. There is just so much anxiety in the air. I don't know about you, but I even feel it in my own mind and body. The best definition of anxiety I know is imagining the future without Jesus in it. On that note, let's read from Matthew's Gospel, a story that we covered actually last summer, but I just want to come back to and reread because it's all about how to deal with fear. Take a look at Matthew chapter 14, read from verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Now, later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. 27, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I, do not be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. When he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, or more literally, it's a, it's a name in Greek. You little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Why, did, why were you so scared? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all who were sick to him and begged him to let those who were ill just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. What a great line right in the center of that story from Jesus. Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Scholars argue that Jesus' command to not fear is the most common command in all of Scripture, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. No command is repeated more often than, do not be afraid. The thing is, easier said than done, am I right? We've done work in the past on the thinker Edwin Friedman's idea of a non-anxious presence. If you're not familiar with Friedman, he was a Jewish rabbi and a therapist who became an early expert in family systems theory. Later in life, he kind of applied all of the data on family systems theory to larger systems, first off the synagogue and the church, then to business, and eventually to the nation itself. His basic premise is that the West, as sociologists have long documented, is built around the myth of progress, which is a faith, and it really is a quasi-religious kind of faith, that human history is moving toward a kind of utopian, or at least a better future. It's evolutionary theory applied to human history. 
But Freeman said that when you actually look just at the data, the West is progressing economically and technologically. More people have more money, or at least a better standard of living than ever before. Science, technology, medicine, lifespan, all of that is at an all-time high. But he would argue that the West is regressing emotionally and relationally. In moments like the last week or two with the economic crisis and COVID-19 and all of the anxiety, we see just how fragile the secular world is, which really depends on hedonism and science and technology and well-being in order for it to function. In times like this, we remember that we are human and we're vulnerable and we're frail and we get sick and we even die and our mortality is set before God and our own soul. But prior to COVID-19 the last few weeks, we were already living through a generation-wide kind of pandemic of anxiety itself. And Friedman identified a five-step self-perpetuating cycle of anxiety by which the West is regressing in a kind of downward spiral. Now, to be fair, he did not really frame it as a self-perpetuating cycle. That's more my spin. For him, it was more five aspects of an anxious culture, but I think there really is a forward inertia to it. The first aspect is reactivity. The vicious cycle is kicked off by a culture of reactivity where people constantly react to the external events of life with internal anxiety, fear, anger, outrage, and isolation. The 24-7 digital news cycle thrives off of all of this reactivity because it generates hits, which in turn drives up advertising revenue. So the media make money off of our anxiety and our addiction to our phone. Often the outrage is even coached as a kind of social justice, when in reality it's just a way to make money and to garner followers. This in turn creates, number two, a herding instinct. For all of the talk about how hyper-individualistic we are in America, and in particular in Portland, we can't change the nature of what it means to be human. Human beings are, in the language of secular psychologists, social animals. And while I don't think that's a fair categorization of human beings as animals, still, that herd mentality is literally wired into our brain. So as our culture is sucked into reactivity, a lot of us just can't help but follow the crowd and kind of devolve, at least at an emotional level, to a mob mentality. Third, this creates a culture of blame displacement. Here's a quote from our friend Mark Sayers. Instead of examining and searching out the underlying causes creating toxicity, we focus on the symptoms, viewing them in isolation instead of seeing them as a part of a system whole. Rather than taking a proactive approach that examines our ability to affect change in areas over which we have a responsibility, we retreat into a perpetual victim status, blaming others and external forces. As blame is thrown around, a cultural paralysis sets in. A suffocating fear of offending creates a gridlock which prevents renewal. We see this right now in Washington, D.C. with partisan politics over how to handle the virus. This in turn creates, number four, a quick fix mentality. The hedonism and instant gratification and Amazon Prime of Western culture creates in us a low threshold for, pa for pain, for like a low level of resilience of what the writers of the New Testament call perseverance or endurance or just old-fashioned patience and hard work. And it makes us look for the silver bullet, quick, 
simple, easy solutions to long-term, complex, hard problems in the soul and in society. Finally, all of this conspires to create a, quote, lack of well-differentiated leadership. That's technical language from the world of psychology. What that means, a well-differentiated leader, well leader is somebody with a clear line of demarcation between that's you and this is me. That's your emotion and this is my emotion. Your emotional state doesn't have to dictate my emotional state. All of this kind of vicious cycle of anxiety works together to create an environment that works against leaders, or at least at least the, against the kinds of leaders that could break the cycle of anxiety. So as the saying goes, we get the leaders we deserve. Often those who prey on the cycle of anxiety to get what they want. Now, bad news, rant over. Friedman said, the only way to stop the cycle is to inject right into the middle of it what he called a non-anxious presence meaning a well-differentiated leader that is calm, that is at peace, that is wise and compassionate and active and firm, but has a clear sense of boundary. A quarter of a century later, his paradigm is more important than ever before. Our world, in particular in the weeks ahead, is in desperate need of followers of Jesus and others to prepare for whatever comes, but not to panic, and also to step in as a non-anxious presence to our neighborhood, to our school, to our workplace, to our family, and to break the vicious cycle of fear. But again, easier said than done, am I right? How do we become the kind of people, the kind of followers of Jesus who have his capacity to live in love and not in fear? Well, there is no like short answer for that. There's no quote kind of copy and paste chapter and verse or formula to follow. But I've been thinking a lot about a kind of counter cycle to Friedman's five of reactivity, hurting, blame, displacement, all of that from the life and the teachings and the way of Jesus. To clarify, this next bit is not an attempt to exegete Matthew chapter 14. If you want that, go back and listen to our podcast. We already covered the text. This is just five practices from the life and the teachings of Jesus himself as they come to us through Matthew in the New Testament that I kind of think are counter habits to the vicious cycle of anxiety in Western culture. You ready? Here's number one, slowing, or what our dear friend Pete Scazzaro calls a slow down spirituality. You hear me and you hear our leadership team talk a lot about the danger of hurry. We quote on a regular basis the line from the philosopher Dallas Willard, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. But thinking a lot lately about how many stories in the gospels of Jesus are interruptions to Jesus' day-to-day -day life. C.S. Lewis once said that how you respond to an interruption is who you actually are, which in particular for me as a dad, that's like, ah, uh, shot to the heart. But this virus really is an interruption to our day-to-day -day life, to our workplace, to our church now, to our economy. And Jesus had enough space in his life, enough margin to welcome interruptions, not with anger or fear or agitation, but with love. And really a central premise for us is that hurry is incompatible with love. I love that line from the Japanese theologian Kosuke Koyama. He writes, God walks slowly because he is love. He calls God the three mile an hour God because three miles per hour is the speed of walking. Hurry is incompatible with love, and this kind of cultural moment that we're in is actually a great opportunity for all of us to slow down. 
Many of us are not commuting to work right now. We get gained back an hour or two in our day, and we're not traveling right now, and a trip was canceled or a conference was canceled, and we have unexpected time. What if instead of just filling that up with more news or Netflix or activity or frenetic busyness, what if we really were to slow down and make space for the interruptions, to practice hospitality, to invite our neighbors over, to invest in relationships, to call and check in on people, to create space to slow down for love? That's number one. Number two is Sabbath, or really just a way of saying rest. One of the main things you see in Jesus' lifestyle is this rhythm of retreat and return. He would oscillate back and forth between kind of time alone or with close friends and community in the quiet and in prayer and in rest and in Sabbath. And then he would return to kind of the public world to teach and preach and work miracles and pray and prophesy and all this stuff. Retreat and return, that is all over the four Gospels. I love the writer Luke's summary, quote, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Can that be said of you or of me, that we often withdraw to lonely places and pray? In fact, I would argue that the more in demand Jesus was, the more he snuck away to pray, rest, sleep, eat, get direction from God in his inner heart, I recently read this um, book from a while back called Ordering Your Private World by Gordon MacDonald, who's a pastor in New York City. My favorite line in the entire book was this, quote, Jesus knew his limits well. Strange as it may seem, he knew what we conveniently forget. Time must be properly budgeted for the gathering of inner strength and resolve in order to compensate for one's weaknesses when spiritual warfare begins. Let me just read that again. Time must be properly budgeted for the gathering of inner strength and resolve in order to compensate for one's weaknesses when spiritual warfare begins. What a great concept of the role of, West, of rest and Sabbath and prayer and quiet in spiritual warfare. Sabbath rest is a form of spiritual warfare, a way that we fight off the three enemies of, if you remember the paradigm, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The more life and leadership is put on our shoulders, the more stress we're under, the more anxiety in our city or our nation, the more we need to prioritize rest and renewal at every level of our being, mental, emotional, physical, relational, and above all, spiritual. And we need to expect the enemy on a regular basis to tempt us to go beyond our limitations. I think of the story in Genesis 3. One way of reading that story in the Garden of Eden is as a temptation to go past your boundaries, to go past your limitations, to slip over into a life of hurry and overload and stress and busyness and exhaustion. Often the temptation plain to our ego or to our fear at the root of so much. Either way, the results are a disaster. Where is the enemy tempting you to go beyond your limitations, to do too much too fast? What would it look like for you to jump at the chance, or maybe not jump at the chance, to say yes to the chance with right now to really rest more, to sleep more, to Sabbath, to spend time in the quiet, to let Jesus bring peace to the surface of your heart? Number three is koinonia. Now, that is a very... Jesus follower kind of word. It's a Greek word, not an English word. As many of you know, it's the word that's used in the book of Acts and all through the New Testament for the kind of intense, 
vulnerable, beautiful, committed relational bond that is between followers of Jesus. Jesus had this not with all, but with the three, Peter, James, and John. He said to them, I have called you friends. It comes as no surprise that this model of relationship, what some have called spiritual friendship, became the gold standard in the early church and beyond. And I think that, especially for those of us in the hyper-individualism and its shadow side of loneliness that is the post-Christian Western world, we have a deep need right now more than ever for koinonia, deep, honest, vulnerable, joyful, self-giving relationships are the stuff of church and of a well-lived life. The people sitting to your right and to your left, if you're watching this in a living room or with your community, are your community, your brothers and your sisters, your family? What would it look like for you to set aside time not to do less together, but more together? Of course, safety and all of that stuff, but to really lean into koinonia. Fourth is contemplative prayer. You know, we often read, another thing that you see a lot in the life of Jesus, is how he would just sneak off into the quiet to be alone, but not just to be alone, we almost always read in the Gospels to pray. I would give anything to know the content of Jesus' prayer. I grew up in a church tradition where prayer, at least the way that I interpret it, meant one thing and one thing only. It meant to ask God for things. And while I think that that kind of prayer, um, you feel free to call it intercessory prayer, where you intercede, you ask God to do things in your life or your church or your world, is vital. I also think it's one of many types of prayer. And I don't think it's what Jesus had in mind in his teaching on abide in the vine. That word abide can be translated rest or come to home in or come rest in the home that is God. I think that kind of prayer is closer to what our Catholic brothers and sisters have called contemplation. That word means different things to different people, but it always has something to do with coming to a kind of quiet attention on the Trinitarian community of love and joy and peace, of resting or making our emotional home in God as God rests and makes his even emotional home in us. I think that's what Jesus meant by abide in the vine. I think he meant a kind of coming to rest in the Father's love and letting the Father's love come to rest in us. I love Ronald Rollheiser's definition of prayer as relaxing into God's goodness. Is that how you think of prayer in the morning or at night before you go to bed as, oh, what are you doing? I'm just relaxing into God's goodness. We hear so much about how followers of Jesus need to become people of prayer, and I 100% agree. But at times, in particular in a culture of overwork and digital distraction and addiction and burnout and all of that, it sounds, if we're honest, a little bit exhausting. And if I'm reading it right, intercessory prayer is a form of work, a form of life that really matters before God, and there is a time and a place for it. But there's also a time and a place for rest in prayer. And not just so that we feel better, but so that we live and love better. The contemplative tradition has a saying that the opposite of contemplative prayer isn't action, it's reaction. Meaning the opposite of a contemplative life isn't one that's active and you're out there and you start a nonprofit and you do justice and you stand up and you work hard and you have a family. Not at all. That actually is a beautiful outgrowth of a contemplative life. The opposite is a reactive life where you just react in fear and anxiety and the tyranny of the urgent and the demand and the crunch of email or an alert on your phone or whatever it is. 
We must live and love out of a place of abiding, out of a place of prayer, of coming to rest in God and his love and his joy and his peace, a kind of contemplative life and leadership where we live from this inner place of yielding and release and trusting God. On that note, last but not least, the fifth practice from the way of Jesus that we come to is indifference. Now, all by itself, that English word sounds a little strange and sounds really close to our apathy or lethargy or something like that. Indifference is how most scholars translate the Spanish word used by Ignatius of Loyola and the Jesuit order from the kind of 17th century Spain. Many argue that indifference isn't the best translation, that freedom is a better translation. The French mystics called it detachment. Often Christian psychologists call it yielding. Whatever you want to call it, it's the very simple idea that goes not just back to Ignatius, it goes all the way back to Jesus himself, that we don't need to control or manipulate the people and events and circumstances of our life to a desired end in order to live at peace and happy because we're living with Jesus in the kingdom of God. We're not alone and therefore we're okay, not just okay, we're in Jesus' language, we're blessed. I think that's what Jesus is saying in Matthew with his do not fear. He's not saying, don't worry, nothing bad will happen to you. He's not saying, hey, chill out, the storm isn't really that big of a deal at all. He's saying, no matter what happens, whether this storm is a really big deal or a really small one, whether the coronavirus is a few weeks or a few months, whether it ends up being really dangerous or not at all, Either way, whatever happens, you can live a life that is set free from fear if you just release the need for control and rest in my love. At the very beginning of his spiritual exercises for which he's famous, Ignatius writes this about indifference, quote, we should not fix our desires on health or sickness, wealth or poverty, success or failure, a long life or a short one, for everything has the potential of calling forth in us a more loving response to our life forever with God. I love that line, health or sickness. Remember he wrote that hundreds of years ago, pre-modern medicine, where something as simple as a cold or a flu could end up as a life-threatening disease. We should not fix our desires on health or sickness. That's at the top of his list. Wealth or poverty. I think of the economic crisis. Think of that line that I read just a few days ago. Don't put your hope in riches. They will surely sprout wings and fly away. Success or failure with our new building, with all of that stuff. A long life or a short one. Everything has the potential of calling forth in us a more loving response to our life forever with God. And then he goes on to say, our only desire and our one choice should be this. We have a choice. I want and I choose what better leads to God's deepening life in me. How can we open, whether for you your fear or challenge right now is COVID-19 or the stock market or your income or your work or unemployment or whatever the very real challenge is that you're facing, we can take this and accept it and not roll over and play dead, but we can say, God, what do you have for me in this? How would this lead to your deepening life and love in me? And notice how he ties this idea of indifference or freedom to love. 
When we scramble for control, when we think we need to have it all done, we negate love. As my therapist said to me recently, when fear is running the show, love is repressed. What a great line. When we let fear dictate how we relate to other people, love is repressed. It is put on the background. So becoming a non-anxious presence isn't just about like feeling less stress or anxiety and like, okay, now we can have a really great night at home and order pizza. Actually, it's about love. It's about how does everything have, quote, the potential of calling forth in us a more loving response to our life forever with God. Now, as we end, um, I, in all honesty, am not by nature like a really calm person. I think in my bioenergetic space, in my body, I am by nature pretty anxious. And so I do not at all have this down, but I am learning year over year as I follow Jesus to release the illusion of control and to come to peace in prayer through that cycle of slowing and Sabbath rests and deep relationships with family and friends and contemplative prayer where I just pay attention to the love and joy and peace of God and indifference where I just yield and, and release my life and my future and my body and even my well-being and those that I love over to God. Becoming a non-anxious presence does not mean that you never feel fear. Fear, neurobiologists tell us, is one of the five basic emotions of survival. God created your body to feel fear when it is under a threat. Becoming a non-anxious presence means that you come to fear God above all, and all the other fears go below that and for the most part disappear. And then fear becomes a signal from your body for you to navigate life by and negotiate with rather than a trauma or a tyrant to oppress you or repress you. It's said that all healing is the removal of fear. And as we come into the presence of God and of our community of God day after week, after month, after year, we become people who are less and less anxious and upset and afraid and more and more, not only at peace and even happy, but people of love. In the coming week, with every relationship that you in, are in and that you face, may you, may I, may we as Bridgetown Church become more and more people of love. Thanks so much for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. As many of you know, we recently bought a church building on the inner east side of Portland and are just about done with the remodel. The plan is to move in late April or early May, depending on what happens with the coronavirus. And we just wanna ask that you would continue to give to Bridgetown Church without uh, our Sunday gatherings. We're in a little bit of a vulnerable space. This is a really key time for us at a financial level and we're really ready to flex that muscle of generosity. And so we just ask that you would continue to give. Or for those of you that are not a part of Bridgetown Church, but you listen along to the podcast, if you at all feel the Spirit of God lead you to give to support the work of our church and our new building project, we would be so grateful. You can give online at bridgetown.church give or find out more at our webpage. Love to you all.